when you guys were younger, how many people liked group projects in, in school? You had to go into a group project. There's, there's a couple, two, three, four. I, I don't know about you guys that raise your hands. I liked group projects. You want to know why? Because whenever I got together with a group, it was generally with a group that was smarter than me, which wasn't hard. And most, probably what I remember the most was in college, because I really felt dumb in college. Part of that, I think I could go back now and do better, except for I don't have the memory I used to have. And back then, I clouded my memory a lot, and so that I really struggled. So I loved getting with a group of what I would consider brainiacs, because that meant I could get away with not do, having to do much and still get the same grade that they got. I know that sounds horrible, and it is to some extent. But the nice thing about a group project is you have people at different levels of knowledge, and because they learn to work together, they all end up with the same passing grade, right? The same result. Now, that can be a really good thing, and yet for others, it can be really grating, right? It can, it can irritate them. It can bother them because they don't feel like other people are pulling their weight or doing the things that they should be doing. What I want you to understand is when it comes to the idea of a group project like that, this is the same thought that the Apostle Paul had when he wrote in several of his letters to the church, is he wants people to understand this about Christianity. Though Christ died for us as individuals, spiritual growth is a group project. None of y'all like that. Too many Christians think that they can grow on their own. That's not how God designed it to be. He designed spiritual growth to be a group project, something that we do together. Let me explain. Most of you probably know this that are sitting here today, but there's over 60 occurrences of the word one another throughout the New Testament, mostly written by the Apostle Paul. And so there's some specific commands that he gives the church that we're supposed to do in order to be a part of one another's life. And here's the deal. If you're not connected to other Christians, then you're going to have a very difficult time obeying the one another commands. Just a few of the one another's this morning, probably the most popular one that is spoken to the church, to the group project, is he commands them to love one another. Everybody say, love one another. More than 15 times, the Apostle Paul would write what Jesus had already spoken and expected to take place is that you would love one another. He goes on and he writes things like, be devoted to one another. That's having a commitment to each other. Somebody say commitment. Nobody likes commitment, do they? But it's having a commitment to each other. And commitment, as I've talked about many times, is much stronger than trust. Committed means you may not always trust, but you're still committed. And that's what happens in marriage if you have a healthy marriage. You break each other's trust at times, right? But you're still committed to that person no matter what because you're going to rebuild that trust each and every time something happens. He talks about living in harmony with one another. He talks about building up one another. He talks about admonishing with one another, bearing with one another, comforting one another, forgiving one another, and praying for one another. There's multiple things, whether we like it or not. We're all involved in the group project. 
Romans chapter 12, verse 5, Paul, in his greatest theological explanation in all of the Bible, I believe, in Romans, he would write that we are members of one another. Not individual, but we are members of one another. Everybody say one another. So these commands are impossible to live out if we are not connected to one another, to other Christians. And so as we continue in our series, I want you to know this is Paul's mindset as he begins to close out uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 5 this morning. If you have your Bible, turn there. I'm reading from the New King James Version. If you don't, let's stand. And uh, I just feel like reading this together. If a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another." For each one shall bear his own load. Lord, I pray this morning, your living word transform our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's be seated. Do you know that there is much more power in reading the word out loud than to ourselves? Before we move forward into these verses, I want to glance back to help give a context for where we're going uh, from Galatians chapter 5. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 15, it gives us a picture of how the Christians in the Galatian church or throughout the churches of Galatia may have possibly been treating each other. When Paul would write to them and he says, but if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. What's he talking about? He's talking about a bunch of Christians who gather together and try and do life together, but they bite at each other all the time. And in biting, they're taking chunks out of each other's lives. And if they're not careful in doing that, then they will devour, not just devour the person they're taking bites out of, but they will literally end up devouring each other. What does that mean? It means that the more that you bite against somebody else, not only are you destroying that person and their faith, but you could possibly be destroying yourself as well. And so it's the destruction of the church in general. However, in Galatians 5.25, Paul gives us the key to the Christian life when he says that if we live by the Spirit, we will also walk in the Spirit. And so in Galatians 5.26, he tells us if we want to be strengthened, then we have to avoid belittling other believers. And what does he say in verse 26? He says, let us, everybody say us, this is speaking to us this morning. Not become conceited. What is conceited? A little cocky, a little arrogant, thinking you're a little bit better than other people. Provoking one another, envying one another. You know the word provoke there means to challenge somebody to a contest. It's this competitive spirit within the church and you're always challenging them that you could be better than them, that you're stronger than them, that you can do, do something greater than them. And so Paul is literally describing pride right now. 
Pride is like this center thing. When you gain pride in your life because you think that you've been doing something good, and in specifically in these verses, good in the Lord, then what happens is that you begin to look at other people through your pride. And you will see one of two things because pride will always divide. You will either, in your pride, begin to pick on other people that you have judged as now being inferior because they haven't accomplished, done, or are doing the same things that God has called you to do, or you will begin to envy those who appear to be superior in their faith, and so you'll have a jealousy for the things that they're doing. Pride will always divide. And so what we see in this chapter is that after these great theological lessons that the Apostle Paul has argued for in the first four chapters is that he becomes very practical as he begins to close out this letter. And he gives us a four-part group project assignment because spiritual growth is a group project. Number one, the first thing he says in these verses is to restore the broken. Verse one, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore. Everybody say restore. It goes from an individual to a group project. It's not just about one person, but it's about a group. You who are spirit, y'all who are spiritual, restore such as a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you always also be tempted. What I want you to hear is this letter specifically isn't written to a bunch of new people that decided to attend church one Sunday. This letter isn't written to people who are unsaved, who have no knowledge of Jesus. This letter right here, this section of the letter, isn't written to somebody who's rejected Jesus and walked away from their faith. This letter is written to those who are the family of faith. They are written to the believers who gather together. They are written to the, this is written to the assembly. This is written to the family of God specifically because he still relates to them as a brethren and a person that's a part of them that has been overtaken. What does that word overtaken mean? Believe it or not, it means to be taken by surprise, unexpectedly, before they were made aware of what was overtaken them, like it came up from behind and overtook them. Now, I've always been one to say that whenever we sin, we quickly make a conscious effort or a decision in our mind that we're going to go ahead and do that. But what Paul's describing here is that there are times in life that it's not that you didn't make that decision, but you were more than likely somehow overcome by something that then led to you to make a choice that was a bad decision. It was sin in your life. He calls it a transgression, and he uses a, a different word for what we might think of as normal sin, and this word that he uses in the Greek for transgression actually means that it wasn't necessarily willful, but it happened. And even more interesting to me, because I've never looked at this this way, is we always hear about those who are backsliding, but the literal Greek word means a side slip, a side slip, like he fell off to the side. He's not necessarily backslidden, turned his back and is going backwards, rejecting God, but he fell down next to you. And so what are you going to do with the person that was overtaken and fell down next to you? You know, a, I would view this in my mind as, a, as an example of this would be the Apostle Peter. 
when he was a disciple of Christ and following after Christ right before Jesus went to the cross, Jesus actually warned Peter. So you would think he would be aware. However, Peter, when he was warned that he was going to deny Christ three times, was overcome by, I would guess, the fear, the emotion of the situation, the dashing of his hope and what could have been had Jesus not been arrested and beaten and put on the cross. And in the middle of all of this, he makes this poor decision that when he's challenged, he may have thought really was meaningless for him to have done because it was a little girl and then some stranger that he doesn't even know that was accusing of this. But he ends up fulfilling what Jesus had warned him was going to happen. I gave you my word, and we've been given the word, and so we are made aware, but sometimes circumstances happen that then cause us to do things we wouldn't normally do. And it doesn't necessarily mean that we're backslidden in the moment because we willfully chose to reject Jesus in those moments, but sometimes in our, our humanness, we do things we shouldn't do, right? And that's what Peter did, and he probably really didn't think it was meaningless because in his heart, he knew Jesus, he loved Jesus, he wasn't turning away from Jesus, but he allowed that fear to more than likely overcome him in the moment. It snuck up on him, and he said, no, that was sin in Peter's life. He had a side slip in life, and what do you you see happen? When Jesus comes back, he doesn't reject Peter. He doesn't look at him as he's some rejection of God and a black sheep, and, you know, he should be kicked to the curb and treated differently. No, he goes directly to him. He addresses Peter by himself, and he restores Peter. Not only does he restore him, but he puts upon him a greater burden than he may have understood before he fell. Like, this is what you're going to be expected to do. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Now go and feed my sheep. He still looked at him as somebody that he could trust, like putting a tremendous responsibility. Here's what I need you to understand. You fell down, learn your lesson, now stand up, and you're going to be stronger for what happened, and you are now going to feed my sheep. I put my trust in you. And when we see people sometimes within the church, we, we can very quickly become judgmental. And the question is, do you judge them? Do you pile on your disappointment? Do you call them weak? Sometimes when we know people individually and what's going on in their life, we have a tendency to either hide their faults because we don't want other people to see what's going on, or we have a tendency to think that we need to expose their faults to everybody else so people can see the truth of who they are and what they are right? Or probably the greater sin in the church's life is that we ignore their faults because we don't want to have to deal with the situation. Our greatest answer would be like, not my business, not my burden, right? I've heard people say that's not my circus or not my monkeys or whatever those, those phrases are. I don't want to get involved in that. I don't need that in my life. I don't want to, to get down and, and have to deal with those types of situations. But Paul says, y'all who are spiritual. Everybody say y'all. That's our little oaky term. And Karen's not here today because Jim isn't feeling well, but she would be proud of us. Oh, yes, we have oakies here. Y'all who are spiritual are to help restore the person. What does that word for restore? It means to mend, to wholeness, to, to repair, right? Here's what I like in the definition, to equip. You're not just 
helping them heal their hearts, but you're also equipping them to be able to overcome the next time that same situation happens to them. You help them put things in order or to help strengthen them. If a part of the body of Christ has experienced a a dislocation or a brokenness or has been torn apart by transgression, what do they need? They need a teammate who they know is on their side and they're willing to help bring the healing. And listen, the Apostle Paul, he says, those who are spiritually mature. Now, I don't want, because of American Christianity, anybody here to misunderstand what the Bible, what God's word actually says. When it comes to somebody who's broken, Paul didn't say Now, when you see somebody broken, go and get your pastor. Because he's the one that really knows how to deal with these people. He's full-time ministry. I tithe to make sure that he has to deal with the mess and not me. I may not give why God wants me to give, but I want to make sure that it's not me that has to deal with the mess. So we're going to send him because I pay him to go. He doesn't say that the elders... The leaders of the church, the elders of the church, they're the ones that are supposed to go and, and heal that other person that's in the body of Christ. I need to make sure I tell them. And then they can add it to their prayer list, and then maybe they'll feel guilty enough that they'll be the ones that have to go and deal with the situation because not my business, not my burden. I just found out about it. I don't want to carry this thing. He doesn't say that the church should have a visitation team and that the visitation team, if, if, if the pastor can't go and the elders don't, can't go, then maybe we can just call the church secretary. She can call somebody on the visitation team and the visitation team, they can go to the church and they can either visit the person or call the person or check up on them. They don't want to get too messy so we don't want to be too involved, but somebody else can handle the situation. That's not what he's saying. He says, if you... You who are aware of the situation and you're spiritually mature. Now, there's going to be some people that are sitting here this morning and say, well, I'm, who's spiritually mature? Like, what is it to me spiritually mature? Like, you know, it's not the uppity, holier-than-thou Christians that, that you might have in your head that you think are the ones that should be going. But it's ordinary brothers and sisters in Christ who do their best to be led by the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, and carry the fruit of the Spirit in their life. And it's a sad situation if somebody could, would say, I'm aware of this situation, but you know what? I, I'm not led by the Spirit. I don't walk in the Spirit, and I don't have the fruit of the Spirit in my life. Maybe to foster what the Word is telling us when somebody comes to you in a situation and says, What should we do about this person in this situation that I found out about? Maybe we should say, well, one of three things. Are you led by the Spirit? Do you try and walk in the Spirit? And do you have any of the fruit of the Spirit in your life? And if their answer is no, then probably somebody else should deal with the situation. But if the answer is yes, then you are spiritual enough to be able to go and handle dealing with and helping and strengthening and encouraging somebody who is going through that situation. And now here's the other thing. Whenever you have to approach a situation that you don't really want to be a part of or you interrupted your time or, you know, it's an inconvenience, because most often ministry is an inconvenience. 
Never generally are you sitting at home thinking, man, I wish somebody would call me because their relative is passing away and ask me to drive to Spokane right now. It, that doesn't usually happen. I have a little bit of free time. Now would be a good time, Lord. It's, that's not the case. At a family that doesn't attend our church, call me on the 4th of July and say, I know you're probably with your family right now, but will you come over to the hospice house and pray with us? Never, ever does it really ever feel like this is a convenient time for me to go and do this. And so you have to be so careful when the Lord calls you out of your comfort zone or what you want to be doing to go and minister to somebody that you minister to them with a right heart. And Paul makes this very clear to the church that the spirit in which you're supposed to minister to somebody who has been caught up in a situation is with gentleness. Everybody say gentleness. What is gentleness? In its definition, it's meekness or humility. It's the idea that you're going to go to them as somebody who is, is even considered to be lesser than. You're there to, to drop yourself, to lower yourself in order to help lift them up in this moment. The idea is that when a friend is down, you don't blow up the situation and you don't think you have to announce it to everybody. But Paul's idea here is that you give them a touch with tenderness. You touch them with tenderness. And there's really a twofold reason that that gentleness, that tenderness is both for them and for you, believe it or not. Because the second aspect of what Paul says about this is he says, in doing this with gentleness, you need to consider yourself or you'll be tempted. Everybody say consider. When you're going to address somebody in the situation, you want to do it with gentleness. That's a place of humility and meekness because you need to be paying attention to your own life, to your own soul, to your own spirit, to make sure that you don't get caught up in sin yourself. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, the apostle Paul would write to the church and he says, if you think you're standing strong, how many people think they're standing strong? Yeah, nobody wants to raise their hand right now. If you think you're standing strong, be careful not to fall. What's he saying? You start thinking that you're strong, there's a great possibility that you're going to be the next one to trip and fall down. When we see somebody else who's slipped into sin, we really should pause and ask the Lord before we step into their life to make sure that we ourselves aren't going to get to, to slip into sin ourselves, that we're not going to slip up because we're going to help somebody else. I believe that spirit of gentleness is the humility to recognize that we all have weaknesses. Every single one of us has weaknesses. And so gentleness helps, it helps those who are broken receive. Because if you come down on them, they might not be so willing to receive what they need in order to be healed of what's going on in their life. So it helps them have the ability to be able to receive. And then it also helps us because we can give what's needed for restoration because more than likely we're giving out of our own weakness, not out of our pride. Some of you 
may have read recently, I always have these news feeds that I, I'll read through, and there was a, a European man that was visiting the Colosseum in Rome. And this has been over the last two weeks. And he was there with his girlfriend. And so he thought it'd be really cool because, you know, he's in love with his girlfriend to carve something that would be memorable into a 2,000-year-old building structure. It's like writing Corey plus Stacy, 2023 on the Colosseum wall. People 2,000 years from now will know that Corey plus Stacy was here in 2023. How sweet, right? And so because it's this uh, building, this architecture of antiquity and, you know, something that's precious, not just to the Italians, but to those throughout the world that are able to look back on the history of the world, of course, you have the possibility of like a $15,000 fine and five years in prison, but they had grace on him and, and he was allowed to go back to Europe and then he wrote a letter of apology and I don't know what kind of punishment will come out of that, but that's not important. What's important isn't the punishment, but what is done to bring restoration. So when the officials see the damage that's been done to something that is considered so valuable, do you think that they're just going to write it off? Do you think that they're just going to ignore it? Do they think you think they're just going to, it's wasted now, we'll just knock it down and get rid of it? No, more than likely, they will probably make sure that they get specialized people who have the ability to bring restoration to what was damaged. And those guys will go in there and they will do their best to make sure that it is completely restored as if it was never damaged. And what I want us to understand this morning is this is exactly what God is saying to you and I. Just because somebody has something that is damaged inside of them that we can recognize from the sin that has taken place in their life, you've got to know that God looks at that person as a part of the family of God and he says, you are my masterpiece. And though you may have damage on the masterpiece, it doesn't mean that you ignore the damage on the masterpiece or you decide to just get rid of it because it's been damaged, but that you are to take people who are spiritually mature, specialized in the word of God, that have the ability to intricately come in, get involved, and bring full restoration to that person. And it's more than just saying, I'll pray for you. What does Jesus say about the person, the neighbor that comes and asks for the bread and the guy tells him, you know, go away, I'll pray for you? Like, that's not enough. The one place that prayer isn't enough is when God calls you to answer the prayer. Are you willing to humbly help restore what God considers to be so precious and so valuable? Because spiritual growth is a group project. Point number two relieve the burdened. The first thing we're called to do is, is help restore the broken. The second aspect of our group project is that we're then called to relieve those who are burdened. Verse two, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What does it mean to bear? It means to help carry a heavy load, a load that's so large that it's overwhelming. What I want us to understand is verse 2 is different than verse 1. The idea here is that a burden isn't the same as a trespass. A trespass is sin. 
But a burden is more than likely when somebody in the family of God has a sickness, they have a financial difficulty, that they have, you know, a broken dream that has taken place, they've lost their business, they've gotten fired from their job, that they, you know, are in financial difficulty, they have family problems, possibly even the death of a loved one. What we're talking about is an issue that isn't sin, but it's an issue that's large enough that it is robbing the joy of Christ in their life. That it's weighing them down on their journey through life and and stopping them from being able to really move forward. Now, here's what I want us to notice as Paul closes out this letter to the church, is he isn't necessarily even so concerned with the burden, what it is, or what burdens could be, or the individual that's burdened themselves, as he is concerned about every aspect that he moves forward talking about is the person or the people who are called to help those who are burdened. Pay attention to that. He's not, he's not so worried about the person of, that's burdened and what burdens they have. What he's worried about is the people that are spiritually mature amongst this person, if they will handle, how they will handle that situation in that person. And so he talks about relieving them from these situations, help lightening the load. Do you know that some of Jesus' harshest words were, re- were given to those who were considered to be religious? In Luke chapter 11, verse 46, he writes these words, or he says these words, written in God's word. What sorrow awaits you experts in the religious law? What sorrow awaits you who are, quote, spiritually mature? For you crush people with unbearable religious demands, and you never lift a finger to ease their burden. Like you can stand up there, you can preach it, you can teach it, you can tell them what they should be doing and how they should be doing it, but when it comes to a burden in their life, that's all you can do. Preach it, teach it, pray it, but you'll never lift your own finger to help lift their burden. Some of the harshest words that Jesus ever spoke was to those that think they're spiritually in tune enough, but yet aren't helping lift the burdens of the people that they go to church with. And then he says these words, which should somewhat make us nervous. When we are lifting burdens, we are fulfilling the law of Christ. So if you're not lifting burdens, guess what you're not fulfilling? The law of Christ. Now, this might sound contradictory because we just went through almost the whole book of Galatians. And what was Paul arguing against? He's arguing against the law. But he was arguing against the Mosaic law, the Old Testament law, and the idea that we have to fulfill this in order to be saved. But Jesus' law, the law of Christ, is the law of love. It's, it's summed up in John chapter 13, verse 34, when Jesus would say, so now I'm giving you a new commandment. Forget everything else. I'm giving you a new one. Love each other. Love one another. Just as I, Jesus, have loved you, you should love each other. I think sometimes as we grow in our faith, we forget how Jesus loved us. We think that he loves us for who we are right now, but he loved us for who we were in the beginning. I I am amazed if I can go off script for a minute. When we went through the book of Galatians and the apostle Paul described God's plan in his life from his birth, 
God had a plan for the Apostle Paul's life. Now, we might look at the Apostle Paul and think, of course God had a plan for your life because look what you did. You wrote two-thirds of the Bible. You spread the gospel to the known world at the time. You're the one that endured persecutions and suffering and famine and, and beatings that took place in your life. Like, you're somebody special. Of course God had a calling on your life. But no, what he was really saying when I read through that is this, that when... Paul was the one that was called Saul, and he was looking at other Christians as being the enemy, and that he oversaw the stoning of Stephen, and he rejoiced in that and even held people's coats and was like, yeah, stone that dude that's calling himself a Christian right now, that God had a plan in his life, a purpose in his life, that God loved him, that God died for him, that God wanted to do something inside of him, that I'm talking about the Paul that was Saul, that he would get given the permission, seek after the permission, and in order to chase after Christians. It's not just going to happen by, by circumstance, but I'm going to do my best to go out and destroy Christians. I don't want to just destroy the ones that I'm near, but I want to go out into the rest of the world, and I'm going to destroy Christians everywhere because they don't know what they're doing. Their beliefs are wrong, and so I'm going to kill me some Christians. I'm going to slaughter some Christians. In the name of righteousness, I'm going to destroy this faith that in those moments, God had a plan, a purpose, and it was good that Jesus Christ died for him, that he loved him right there then. He didn't love what he was doing, but he loved the masterpiece that he created because he had a greater plan and a greater purpose for his life. And when I look at what Jesus Christ has done for me in my life, I don't want to look at what he's doing right now. Yes, I'm thankful for what he's doing right now. But I look back over the years, and I hear people talk about, you know, when you were younger and you got drunk and you wrecked this car and hit a telephone pole and flipped upside down in the creek, and it was the middle of winter, and you had to walk a couple miles in snow to get to your uncle's house that you survived something like that. There was a lot of dumb things that God must have been with you. And years ago, I probably would have said, no, God probably wasn't with me. I wasn't serving him at the time. But now I look at what the scripture says and I say, you know what? God knew me. He loved me. He had a plan and a purpose for my life, even in the mess, even in my rebellion. He loved me in my rebellion. That's how great his love is. That he was looking at the future of my life and he was waiting for the day that I would surrender my heart and I would begin to serve him. And that's what God is doing for every single person that's broken outside of these walls. So now I'm giving you a new commandment, love each other just as I have loved you. Don't forget what, I, don't get caught up in the hype. What's Jesus saying? Just as I have loved you. Not for where you're going right now. Yes, he loves you for where you're going right now. But just as Jesus loved you, even when you were broken and a mess, that's the love that Jesus had for you, has for you, and will always have for you. And that's what he's saying right now. When you look amongst the family of God, the people that you call your spiritual family, that you in theory are connected to in a church setting, you are assembled, you seek God together, you journey through life together, and you see somebody else that's broken, that you would have that same love for them. The mess doesn't turn you off because you know that God has a plan and a purpose, and you're going to love them like Jesus loved them. When you see somebody who's been rocked by reality or that they have the weight of the world upon their shoulders, our response should always be the love of Jesus. 
Sometimes, honestly, we, we don't even know how we can best, you know, give people that love, the love of Christ. But I think that the, the one factor that Jesus set a precedent for is if you don't know what love would do in that situation is what would you want love to do for you? And at a minimum, go out and do that and express that love because spiritual growth is a group project. Number three, this is the idea that sometimes we need to repent for bragging. So we're to restore the broken. We're to relieve the burdened. And God knows we won't do those things if we're too full of ourselves. So the third thing is to continually be rent, repenting for the conceited, arrogant temptations that come into our life. Verse 3, the apostle would write, For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Now, he's not trying to knock all of us and say that we're nothing. But what he is trying to get across is the same thing he would say in Philippians of, about us emptying ourselves like Christ emptied himself, that he has come to the place that he will serve, that he will come underneath, that we will lower ourselves in order to help lift other people up. Verse 4, but let each one examine his own work, pay attention to what you're doing, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. The implication to what he's saying right here is that if we refuse to restore the broken, or to relieve the burdened, more than likely, it's because we think that we are better than others. It's so easy for us to look down our nose, and I know nobody here would say these kind of things, but sometimes you look at somebody's life and you think, well, they probably deserved that. Or you look at them and you say, they're so weak. They just can't handle the pressure. I saw it coming. I don't want to get involved. Or you would say, I'd never do something like that. How quick we are to condemn and look the other way as we pass by on the side of the road or the opposite side of the church or we stay away in a different aisle because we've quickly condemned somebody else. And usually our ability to be quick to condemn somebody is equal to the inflated view of ourselves. You're more quick to condemn the more highly you view yourself. However, if we would all just simply remember where we came from, if we would realize that we are nothing apart from the grace of Christ, that we studied in this book, that we are conscious of our own weaknesses and our own sins, then we would be much faster to forgive rather than condemn the weaknesses and failures of others and be more willing to help. Now, it's not a perfect example, but it's an example that I want to point out. You know that a couple Sundays ago, there was a broken down motorhome out in the parking lot. How many, do you guys... For those who came to church two Sundays ago, you saw a broken down motorhome at the back of the parking lot? Of course you did. And the other thing with that broken down motorhome is it was parked the opposite direction of all the parking spaces. 
which because it's summertime, we're not as worried about right now, but it would have at one time really caused a complication. And so it was taking up like 10 times as many spaces as if it had just parked normal or been parked normal, right? And so there was actually, uh, I got a call the night before from a business owner in Smelterville that asked if I would call and have that towed away and that I should have it towed away because it's probably going to take up too many parking spots in our church parking lot on Sunday morning, and they wanted that thing to be gone. And so uh, we get here, and I, and I hear a few people talk about, you know, the spaces and how it took away parking. But we had one brother in Christ, Jedediah, who's one of our newest brothers in Christ. And, and I think why this happened is because Jedediah is still at this place where he views himself as on equal ground with whoever that was that was broke down. And so my brother here, he goes over to that broken down motorhome, people who were fighting, people who are struggling with drug addiction, and he invites them to breakfast, to our free morning breakfast. And then to church. Now, I don't know if they both stayed in church, one of the others stayed in church. And then last Sunday, Jedediah makes sure that the guy that nobody else probably wanted to deal with was here in church again. And then as Craig's preaching revival, I go out into the hallway to, I was going to go over to Children's Church and let them know that it's going to go a little bit longer, be prepared. Jedediah's in the hallway. I said, what's up, bro? I'm just trying to find him so he can get some of these blessings that are going on in the sanctuary right now. He's chasing the guy down because the guy doesn't want to stay to make sure that he gets part of the blessing of the service that's taking place in church right now. Why? Because he views where his weaknesses are as he's no better than the guy that's sitting out drug addicted and in a, in a mobile home that's parked sideways in the church parking lot, right? But how many of us, and this is, this is Corey included, walk past what we see because we don't want to bear the burden of somebody else's mess. I'll just mind my own business. Just let that sit. He convicted me. One of the youngest people in our church, newest people in our church, convicted me that there wasn't 200 people that stopped by that motorhome and asked them, hey, since you broke down in the church parking lot, why don't you come over for breakfast? Why don't you come to church? Why? Because in some form or another, we viewed ourselves as being higher than those people. And you think, well, I might have, but I was afraid. I hate to tell you, but fear is just often another form of being conceited because you will allow the idea of what somebody might say to you intimidate you from doing what God wants you to do. Like if they respond to me in a certain way, then, then I, you know, I, I might be harmed or those words might hurt me or, you know, and I don't want to be hurt. I don't want to have those words spoken to me. I don't want that. What do you got? You got a lot of eyes in your life. And so no matter how we look at it, there's still this aspect that we lift ourselves above 
and we don't want to reach out because of our own arrogance in life. Spiritual growth is a group project. Everybody say group project. And when we're walking in pride, guess what? We are not fulfilling the law of Christ. How good does it feel when we recognize we're not fulfilling the law of Christ? Point number four is respect your boundaries. So you had restore the broken, relieve the burdened, repent of bragging, and now respect your boundaries. Everybody say respect your boundaries. For each one shall bear his own load. Each one shall bear his own load. What's this different than verse 2? Verse 2, it referred to an overwhelming burden that a single person couldn't carry by themselves. In verse 5, the word for load here, it's like the invoice that is part of a freight. It's, it's a tiny little bit of a whole big thing. They're still expected to carry their own load. It's the invoice of the whole thing. Or it's a task or a service that has been given. That's the figurative aspect of this. And so it's something that's small and light enough that anybody could carry. It's the difference between carrying a backpack or a boulder. We can all carry a backpack, but we're all called to help in carrying the burden that is too heavy for somebody else to handle. But there's an aspect that we're all responsible for. And here's what I want to say to some of you this morning, is that some of you, you're the kind of person that has a tendency to want to take on everybody's cares and concerns. That you see what's going on and you think we need to help here and we need to help there and we need to go do this and we need to go do that. And why isn't the church helping here and the church isn't helping that person? And and why aren't more people involved in helping over here? And, And you see all of these needs and all of these burdens that are going on everywhere. And you think it's your responsibility to help in every single need that you see. I want to tell you, if you ever go overseas to somewhere where Michael Bushebi lives in Kenya, you're going to be overwhelmed with burdens that if you're not careful, it will destroy you because there's so many. But we're not called to, to carry the world on our shoulders, right? Maybe you feel like that because, you know, you, you're an empath. You have those, those feelings of other people or you have this genuine compassion and you really want to want to help people. Or maybe it's quite possible that you're codependent and you have the need to feel, feel like you're needed. And so you fulfill that by trying to help every single need. God isn't asking us to carry the world on our shoulders. The second aspect of this is there's people who struggle in the opposite direction. They get burned out. They get burned out on life. Sometimes they get burned out by Christians. Sometimes they get burned out by doing ministry to others. And then they're burning out. They really don't want anything to do with anybody else's problems. And so the opposite happens. Rather than wanting to meet everybody's needs, then they pull away. They don't want to be involved again. They don't want to throw themselves back out there. We aren't expected to carry another person's backpack. But when even you're burned out, you have to be so careful that you don't back so far away that you aren't willing to fulfill the law of Christ in your life. Helping lift the burdens of the lives of people that are in the family of faith. Matthew 
chapter 11, 28 through 30, Jesus says this to us, and we need to take heed to this. A lot of times we look to this as a, as a comfort for someone who needs rest. Jesus would say, come to me, all you who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. There's the rest. But listen, he's not saying that you're going to have every weight taken off of your shoulders. He says, for my yoke is easy. Now listen, there's still a yoke. When we look for easy street, a lot of times we want to shed the yoke altogether. But Jesus is saying, no, I want you to be yoked to me. There's still a yoke. And my burden is light. I'm not saying I'm removing all the burden from your life, but it will be light. And so the ministry that Jesus calls us to requires that we carry some weight. When I brought Jerry Mitchell up here at the beginning and recognized the burden that God put upon him, I could see the literal burden that God put on his shoulders when he left that Be Bold conference and the ministry that God was calling him to. It wasn't destroying him. The actual weight that was put upon him was actually strengthening him. God was calling him to be strengthened in his faith and to step out into a place that was uncomfortable to help lead young boys into becoming men of God. That weight is good. But sometimes what happens is, is we allow it to become such a, a heavy burden to us that it becomes harmful to us harmful to us and our relationships with other people, us and fulfilling the law of Christ, us and even our relationship with Jesus Christ. And here's the deal I want to caution you with this morning or, or try and help you with is that if you feel that when you're in ministry, when you know God has called you to do something, if it's too heavy, because sometimes there's a boulder so heavy that somebody's got placed upon their shoulders, is that it requires more than one person to be involved in their life. It's quite possible that you need to build a team, that you need to have several people that are reaching out to help lift that burden off of that person's shoulders, that, that we are, are willing to go out, be bold, and ask other people, hey, our brother and sister is struggling right now. Like, let's gather around them. Let's, let us gather around them and help lift this because if I'm trying to do it all by myself, it's going to burn me out too. And then two of us are going to be struggling. Or it's quite possible that you need to focus more on what specifically the burden is, the ministry is that God has called you to because you're trying to, to throw your net out and, and catch too many people that need help. When God has only called you to help this group of people or this person, whatever it might be. It's interesting to me the, the Apostle Paul, again, he doesn't address the people in sin or, or with the heavy burden as much as he's using them to make a practical point to the church. He's less concerned with their burdens right here and more concerned with addressing those who are supposed to be helping the burdened. 
It's an aspect of who we as Christians are supposed to be, even when we're carrying our own burdens. I don't know if any of you have heard of Dr. Fumio Shigeto. I didn't hear of him until Friday. But I was reading this story, and I just want to share it with you guys because I felt like it was so fitting. Dr. Fumio Shigeti was a doctor in Japan when we dropped a bomb on his nation. On the day that the atomic bomb was dropped over Hiroshima, he was a young physician who was about a mile outside of the city. And he was waiting for a trolley that was going to take him into work, into the hospital where he worked. And so he was standing in line. And the line stretched from where you get on to behind the building. And so he was actually standing just behind the corner of the building when the bomb went off. The most powerful weapon the world had ever seen. And at that distance, uh, he was partially sheltered from the blast that took place behind the building. And so Dr. Shigeto, he was spared most of the brunt of what took place with everybody else that was standing, even in that line right in front of him. People had only been standing a few feet away were now lying on the ground, most of them majorly burned. They had blood coming out of their bodies everywhere. They were in anguish, severe pain, crying out. He himself was stunned from the blow of what happened. He was confused because he didn't even know what just took place. He was overwhelmed in the moment. He was hearing the screams of people around him that were in pain and looking out all around the streets. There were countless bodies that were laying out in the middle of the roads on sidewalks. And he thought, how in the world can this young physician, how can I possibly help this mountain of people who were in need? And then although stunned himself, impacted himself, a burden himself, he knelt down, he opened the pack that he was carrying, It was his black bag, and he began to treat the first person he had opportunity to treat, which was a guy that was literally laying at his feet. And he treated him until that guy asked him to start treating his wife first. Then he treated that guy's wife, and then he just simply went to the next person, to the next person, to the next person, to the next person, as he began to just turn his attention to others who were immediately around him. He simply helped the closest, the neediest, and those who were willing to accept it. And so we have to ask the question, could Dr. Shigeto's experience be our own experience? He used the load, the bag that he was carrying, that he had been given, the burden that he packed every single day. He used that in order to help minister to other people. Now, there might be somebody here this morning thinking, yeah, but he was a physician and what he was given, you know, he was an expert in. Well, the truth is, whatever the Lord has put upon your shoulders that is easy and light is all that you need, that you're an expert in, that is required to minister to those who are 
you have opportunity to minister to. Are you qualified? I think about we have a Celebrate Recovery ministry, and what that ministry really is supposed to be is, uh, is a ministry of people who are trying to help those who have hurts, habits, and hang-ups. Hurts, habits, and hang-ups. If that doesn't encompass everybody, I don't know what does. But listen, these, these people aren't necessarily experts in their field but in God's eyes, if it's the burden that the Lord has put on their shoulders, they're packing some of their own. And it's the broken helping the broken. They recognize what God has done in their life is doing. And though they may be not viewed as an expert by outsiders, God looks at them and says, you take that backpack that I've given you to carry and you start helping others who are around you struggling with those same burdens in their life. And I think like Dr. Shigeto and Celebrate Recovery, that we, the church, we're supposed to be partnering with Jesus to fulfill what Paul has written in Galatians chapter 6, that all of us have this burden to restore the broken, to relieve the burdened, to repent of our bragging, and to have a respect for boundaries. We are not called to carry the world on our shoulders because Jesus already holds the whole world in his hands. But we are called to fulfill the law of Christ, which is to love each other as Jesus has loved us. Let's pray. Father, I ask this morning that as we hear your word, have heard your word, that it will be seed that lands on good soil in our heart. I pray that as your word says that as it goes out, it will not return void, that it, pre it brings a fruitfulness that will take place in our lives. Lord, I pray that we will have eyes to see those who are broken those who are burdened. Lord, that we will understand the burden that you have put upon our shoulders, what it means, what it represents, and what we're called to do with that burden. And Lord, that we will begin to see, as the Apostle Paul was asking the churches in Galatia to do, a ministry that takes place not because it's a program that's established, but because we simply as believers of Christ and members of the family of faith will reach out to each other and help each other grow and gain strength and learn the weapons that you've given us, the tools that you've given us to be overcomers as we journey together on this path of life, that we will all experience life, life abundantly and life eternally. Lord, break our hearts for you and for each other that we may fulfill the law of Christ. In Jesus' mighty and precious name we pray.